Good morning and welcome to episode 1518 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast at Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you holding up? I'm doing all right. You have to ask. We have to start every conversation that way these days. I know, because I'm doing it myself. Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear how the Peru thing ended up? Yes, please. All right. I, I know that these stories are very common. This is not a special story, but the uh, suspense and the uh, the ending to me make it worth telling. So, all right. So, the background is that our friends went to Peru on a uh, anniversary trip. They left actually the same day as the directive that major league baseball players shouldn't use fans pens so that's when, that's when they left <laughs> when it started getting really serious autographs were in jeopardy yeah and they were going to be there for like a couple day a couple weeks and so six days before the and they were out in remote remote areas of peru and so six days before they were due to get back was when the nba canceled its season five days is when major league baseball postponed it four days is when uh, our kids school got canceled and so that is when they started to get nervous. And so they started calling and trying to move their flight up, but they couldn't move their flight up unless they were in Peru and they were not in Peru. They were out far away. And so they, they kind of had to wait. And so they get to Peru and the morning before they're going to leave is when Peru, uh, which had something like 70 cases at this point confirmed. So very small. It wasn't a huge story for the most part while they were out there where they were abruptly says tonight at midnight all flights grounded airport closed and their flight was the next day at like 9 a.m so now they're panicking right now they're they're really in a panic mode they're trying to find any flight any flight to any part of the world that can get out of peru that day and so they're in the airport they're talking to every airline they're calling their travel agent people here are on the phone with airlines trying to find anything available they call their travel agent they have friends who were pilots who were like working the, the the scene behind the scenes trying to find anything nothing can be found they're like hopeless they have they have lost hope they are going to be away from their kids for weeks okay so that's basically where we pick up right that's mm-hmm. the backstory so they call a different travel agent and this travel agent finds a plane that nobody else knows about and so the story of this plane is the day before so uh, the day before the action is happening, two days before their flight, a plane was taking off, and while it was, I guess, taxiing on the runway, it crashed into a catering truck. <laughs> and this plane, I, I'm not quite clear on the details, but the plane still took off. But for some reason, they had to take off with with 40 fewer passengers. So 40 people had to stay behind in Peru. This flight goes off, but the airline promises these 40, don't worry, we'll come back tomorrow, we'll get you. And this is before the, the, the closures has been announced. And so they have promised these 40 people they will come back. And so they do, this plane comes back to get the 40 people. And my friends find out through a second travel agent about this plane and they get on a flight to Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> And they fly from Fort Lauderdale back to Long Beach, and they end up making it home a day late. Wow. And totally broke. Always get a second opinion. Yeah, like a 12th opinion, right? So so they made it. That's great. Catering truck. (laughs) Get out of here. 
That's huh. what I'm saying. Meanwhile, I've barely left my apartment that entire time. Yeah, but I see you've, uh, you've reached the point of quarantine where uh, we start writing about bidets. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Didn't even take that long for me. <laughs> no, you were writing it. You had it ready to go by day one, I bet. Yep. <laughs> this is it. It's finally my chance to talk about bidets. Yep. Would have been writing about spring training stats right now, probably. Instead, bidets. You know, there a bunch of podcasts lately have been doing commercials for, I, I think, for bidets, for a better toilet, and I believe huh. it's a bidet-based toilet. And I always hear these reads, these podcast hosts doing the reads, and they all seem, you know, like kind of a little bummed out that that's the ad read they have to do. <laughs> but you're just at home going, why did I, why did I choose to start an ad-free podcast? I, I know. Been, I could have been the bidet reader. I could do those live reads totally genuinely. Send me your copy. I'll just put it out there for free. So it is. It's like when we did the play index ads, and it was yeah. it didn't feel like an ad because we were just we were truly genuinely willing to do play index promotion for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So <laughs> it is now the the you know the more or less the eve of of opening day. Uh, it's three days away, two days probably by the time you listen to this. Did you have you ever in your in your life had any opening day rituals, opening day traditions, things you did every year, either before or around or on opening day? Nope, not really. Just watched baseball. Okay, I had one. Okay. So when I was a kid, I went and saw Field of Dreams when I was eight years old, and my dad took me to see it, and I loved it, absolutely loved it, thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen. And so we got it on VHS, and for most of my childhood, it was the only movie that we owned a video of. My family was sort of (laughs) philosophically against owning movies. Uh, my parents would say, "What are you, are you really going to rent that movie 10 times? Because otherwise it's not worth it. And so Field of Dreams was the exception because it did genuinely seem like otherwise we might rent it 10 or more times. So I, we had a copy of Field of Dreams and every year on the night before opening day, I would watch Field of Dreams. And so for most of my childhood, it was my favorite movie. And uh-huh. then I was thinking about that in the context of my my baseball journey, my my larger baseball journey. And when I was throughout my childhood, I was a baseball fan as like a key part of my identity. All my Christmas presents from grandmas and aunts and uncles, they would just be, you know, just get a baseball thing, you know, baseball potholder, doesn't matter, just give him a baseball thing and he'll be happy. And I would start every conversation by proclaiming my love of baseball. And then, you know, I uh, when I started, when I went to college, I know that I followed baseball I know that I watched games. I was aware of who was on what teams. But there was this period in college where it quit. I, I don't know. It ceased to be my identity. I don't really remember, like, loving it. I, I watched it, but I don't remember having, like, particularly strong emotions about baseball. And uh, I don't really remember watching it. I'm sure I did. I know I did. But I don't remember being obsessed with it or anything like that. And there was this kind of lull, this gap as I became an adult. And then when I became an adult, I went, you know, I graduated college and then Moneyball came out. And my, I became, uh, again, baseball became part of my identity again, but in a very different way. This was almost like a new, a new storyline where it was all about uh, being like really progressive and smart with my baseball fandom i was really into the stats and i was really into reading baseball prospectus and i was into this idea of being like kind of uh, part of the the niche of like smarter baseball fans and then eventually that merged into you know my career and so the gap in college though makes my my childhood field of dreams my childhood baseball fan experience 
separate and different from my my sort of older baseball fan experience. And mm-hmm. as I was an adult, when I became you know an adult, a, a, an adult baseball fan, as opposed to a, an adult baseball fan with a hyphen, there, <laughs> adult baseball. What would that be? Uh, I think Emma Spann wrote about that <laughs> <Yeah>. one time. <laughs> when I became an adult, I, I, beca- I was sort of aware that Field of Dreams was considered very very bad by (laughs) by the baseball writers that i was into it was i think the conventional wisdom among baseball prospectus writers and the circle around them in the 2000s that field of dreams is a very bad movie is a it's a it's kitschy and treacly and you know just sort of dumb and that it's not one of the good baseball movies i didn't i don't really remember reading any of the explanations for why people hated it but i was aware that it was not cool to like field of dreams and i because you don't casually see movies like the same is true of center field the john fogarty song Mm -hmm. but of course a song you you hear songs in through the course of your life so i've heard you know john fogarty sing center field 30 times in the last you know 20 years and i've been able to reassess it because i've been exposed to it but you don't necessarily stumble upon a movie and accidentally watch the whole thing and so i haven't really revisited field of dreams i didn't i don't really remember i didn't really remember a lot of things about it and i did not have a grown-up opinion of it which is all to say that on the eve of opening day uh, i decided last night to watch field of dreams with my eight-year-old Mm-hmm. as well as with my wife, who's never seen it, to see if it's good, <laughs> to see if the movie is good. I know it's very controversial. This is a question that has a lot of very strong... Some people I know do still like it, yeah. and they love it. They it's still love it. It's become the most divisive baseball movie thank there you. is, I think. Yeah. I think, thank you. That is, I think, correct. And there is not a lot of, necessarily, a lot of middle ground, certainly, in the way people discuss it. And so I was prepared to hate it. I was prepared to love it. I was prepared either way to be surprised by having strong emotions, but I was kind of just curious to see what I thought of it and also what my family thought of it. And so I'm telling you now that I watched it and we're going to talk about whether it's a good movie. So, okay. So you uh, didn't read the boat rocker by Terrence Mann when you were 14 and you told your dad, Kevin Costner's a criminal and you're never watching field of dreams again. And you turned your back on it forever. You just sort of drifted away naturally and then now have returned to it. That's very specific. That, so I guess that means that you have seen it recently enough that you remember. Yes, I also watched it yesterday. Oh, you did? My wife, and she had not seen it before. I did not watch it with my eight-year-old because I don't have an eight-year-old, but we watched it together with our dog because I hadn't seen it since, uh, I don't know, in its entirety, probably not since high school. And I was never a total Field of Dreams head. I, I liked it the first time I saw it. I had a positive impression of it, and I was aware that the opinion of it, the critical consensus had curdled maybe in the years since, but I hadn't really revisited it other than just some scenes that you see all the time because they're famous and feel the dreams. So I didn't have perfect recall of it either. But yes, now I've seen it recently enough that I can cite Terrence Mann's uh, opus. Very good. Do you know? Did you did you know that Terrence Mann was uh, was actually J D. Salinger in the book? But I that... did know that. I I have not read the book Shoeless Joe by W. P. Kinsella, but I have come across that fact in my reading. There are some things that that changed either in the book or from reality, and it's interesting to think how significant the change is because 
Terrence Mann as a character is very different than J.D. Salinger as a character. And if you imagine all the same scenes, but with J.D. Salinger, does it change the meaning of the movie? Does it change the the character that Kevin Costner plays? Does it change any of the themes that are in it? If you think of it as, as Salinger and not this sort of like more like almost civil rights icon that Terrence Mann plays or mm-hmm. I don't know, a, a kind of a, a 60s activist icon that Terrence Mann plays as opposed to just a surly, you know, literary hermit that that sort of Salinger became. Mm-hmm. It's very different, right? Anyway, yeah. the, the other thing that changed, I'm jumping ahead here, but they changed a few of the biographical details of, of Moonlight Graham and like they changed... The year he died from 1965 Mm -hmm. to 1972 and the year he debuted or that he played from 1905 to 1920 or 1922 maybe. And I've been trying to figure out what the purpose was of either of those changes. Why go through the effort of changing that unless it's a significant reason to change it. And I can't really think of a significant reason that they would have changed it thematically. No, I noticed that too. I guess maybe, I don't know, is it just to make the years line up well or something? Because he actually died in 65, which is before Ray goes to visit him in the movie. But I don't know why it would really matter that he played in 1905 instead of 1922 or whatever, because it wasn't like he was a favorite of Ray's dad or something, and they had to make the timeline work out. None of them had ever heard of Moonlight Graham before they see the message flashed on the scoreboard at Fenway. So, no, I'm not sure why they would have done that. My guess is that the, the reason that they did it is that they wanted him to die after the 60s because so much mm. of this movie, it like the subtext of this movie is really all about the 60s, which we'll probably talk about. But it is it is almost more of a love letter to the 60s than it is or at least to the idealism behind, you know, that that the director saw in the 60s, then it is a baseball, a love letter to baseball, and it is really a love letter to baseball. (laughs) And so by having him die in 72 instead of 65, oh, by the way, we're going to spoil some things. Yes. (laughs) Then you, A, you get him dying around the time that, that Ray's dad died instead of a decade before. I don't know if that matters, but for, like, you know, balance. Uh, you have him dying, I don't know, right after a bunch of the players on the field seem to have died around 1970, like uh, Chick Gandel and Gil Hodges, who for some reason appears. And so <laughs> there might be, if you were to break down the players who showed up, especially the players that they had a choice about who to put in, I don't know, Mel Ott, I'm not sure, you might see a a real cluster of like early 70s deaths by by choice anyway and so by having him die in 72 you also have him dying after the 60s are over and not just after the 60s are over but even after like even after the culture of the 60s had really petered out which you could argue didn't happen until around 72 or maybe even slightly later and then if you're gonna have him die in 72 instead of 65 then you might need to have him playing in 1922 instead of 1905 so that you can have Burt Lancaster playing him instead of a 92-year-old man. All right, we've dawdled long enough. Should we lay out the summary or the premise just for people who somehow <laughs> haven't seen the movie and I mean, I'm are de- not familiar with the broad strokes here? We, we definitely could do that. I will do that. I will okay. do that. But first, I just I want to get this out of the way. One word answer. Okay. In your opinion, is this a good movie? Yes, <laughs> but I will say that at this like the conversation has become so polarized that 
there aren't really any Field of Dreams moderates anymore. It's just people who think it's the most beautiful love story, baseball and romance and fathers and sons in America, and it touches your heartstrings and makes you cry. Or there are people who think it's just a manipulative, mawkish <laughs> mess and makes no sense and uh, contradicts itself and is just overdone in the worst possible ways. And I agree with elements of what both of those people <laughs> say. And so I feel like it's almost like the most radical take now is just that, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's not it's not the best movie and it's not the worst movie. Even if I were just ranking baseball movies, you know, it probably wouldn't be like in my top five, but it also wouldn't be uh, on my baseball Razzies or anything. I, I like it. I'm generally fond of it. And yet it has many flaws, which we can discuss. So I, I don't feel moved to stake out one extreme position, which uh, I, I don't know that there are that many of us moderates left. But yeah. I don't know, maybe there's a, a silent majority of people out there who just think Field of Dreams is okay. <laughs> yeah, I thought that it was pretty good. I also am in that moderate uh, lane. I thought it was pretty good, but I also did not like it. I would say that, yeah, <laughs> like it was like if you were giving it five stars by quality, I'd say three, and by 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 me yeah. liking it, I'd say two. I, yeah, there and if I didn't have I really an attachment despised. to baseball, and if I didn't like baseball, I'd probably think it was garbage. <laughs> oh well, 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 that's interesting. I'm going to, I think, probably later, I'm going to make the opposite case. Hmm, okay. All right, so yeah, real quick, the summary of it. When there's a, a man who in the 80s is living in Iowa, he's a farmer, but he is not uh, naturally a farmer. He's naturally a city boy. He was raised uh, by his baseball-loving father. They grew apart as he reached adolescence and had a rift that carried through most of his adult life. That's all in the prologue. While he's working in the farm in the first scene, he hears a voice that says, if you build it, he will come. This voice is unexplained. Nobody else can hear it and repeats itself until Ray sees a vision of a baseball field and then another vision of a baseball player who he amazingly recognizes as Shoeless Joe Jackson somehow recognizes this man as Shoeless Joe Jackson because we all have in our head an image of Shoeless Joe Jackson. <laughs> well, it was his dad's favorite player. So then he uh, he becomes convinced that this vision is telling him that he needs to build a baseball field, and he follows through on it with the support of his wife. He builds the baseball field, and then after waiting a while, baseball players start showing up from the ghost world, including Shoeless Joe Jackson and the rest of the 1919 Chicago White Sox. This leads to more voices and visions he goes on a hunt for this, you know, Salinger-esque author in Boston who then accompanies him first to a baseball game and then in pursuit of a player named Moonlight Graham, a real player who played one game in his career but did not get to, to bat. And then they go back to the field where more baseball ghosts are playing. All the while, he's losing his farm to bankers. And then at the end, one of the baseball players turns out to be his his ghost father. They have a catch. Oh my <laughs> gosh, this movie sounds bad. <laughs> they have a catch. And as the bankers salivate over the uh, farm that they're going to uh, get to foreclose on, I'm simplifying, but, but then uh, suddenly cars begin to show up in the gloaming, mm -hmm. apparently to pay money to see ghost ball players. 
and that's that. It's completely preposterous. <laughs> it's just an utterly ridiculous movie. My wife, who had not seen it before, enjoyed it, but she said, this is a strange movie, and it really is. It's so strange. Nothing anyone does makes any sense. No one acts in a rational way or even in a necessarily internally consistent way. It's just this guy wandering around a cornfield. He hears a voice. He does whatever the voice tells him to do. He goes and brings this author who really... I don't know that Terrence Mann actually needs to be in this movie. No. <laughs> at all. <laughs> he just really has no purpose in this movie, which he actually acknowledges in a scene. He's like, well, we know what everyone else is doing here. I don't know what I'm doing here. And well, uh, Annie says the same thing to Ray. She's like, he's my favorite writer too, but what's he got to do with baseball? I don't know. <laughs> it says in the script that I've got to go kidnap him. None of them need... It's weird because there's three visions... He pursues each of these visions, and yet yeah. we are told at the end that the visions actually are all about his dad. Mm -hmm. And so are we to believe that, that Shoeless Joe wasn't supposed to be there either? Or, or did, this, did the voice, was the voice working on two levels, and each one was a crafty, basically a craftily ambiguous statement that could work on both an A plot and a B plot at the same time? It is very odd. You're right. Terrence Mann has no no real role in the plot except to uh, be entertaining. He's by far yeah. the most entertaining oh, character. Yes. By far. <laughs> and then to 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 die? Uh, to, <laughs> to, to, at the end, he, he just walks to his death, Where which the weird thing is that he essentially, to the normal, well, all right, to the normal person, he got kidnapped, right? Like he's, mm -hmm. he goes, the last person he's seen with is Ray Kinsella. He goes in Ray's weird hippie van without a suitcase or a change of clothes to right. Minnesota. His son is worried that he is missing. And in fact, there are reports in the local newspaper yeah. that um, that famous author Terrence Mann is missing. And then he goes to the cornfield and disappears for good. No, <laughs> yeah. And no one's going to arrest Ray Kinsella for this. It seems <laughs> like they are. My wife also thought that it was very odd. These are direct quotes that I wrote down. When Shoeless Joe shows up, she says, this is weird. And then later, <laughs> when Mel Ott shows up, she said, this movie's so weird. It and then she paused and said, it actually works for me, but it's very strange. <laughs> was she upset that Shoeless Joe wasn't betting lefty? Oh, that's the other thing. So, oh, here's another one. It's a very strange movie. She said that later <laughs> yeah. yeah it it is another thing they changed this is like maybe the most common complaint among baseball fans is that shoeless joe of course is a, a batted lefty and threw righty and they cast ray liotta who <laughs> batted righty and threw uh lefty and who rather than being a south carolinian <laughs> hick yeah. was a i mean he's ray liotta he's yeah. <laughs> playing ray liotta it's <laughs> He, you know, like he plays a game and then he goes down to the Copa. Like there's, this yeah. is like the worst <laughs> casting. It, and so for some reason, they just didn't think it mattered. Like they have this whole love letter to Shoeless Joe Jackson and they're like, but change everything about him. Yeah. Which is very odd. Yeah. So the story I was thinking about a lot, if, if you want to get into the strangeness of it, the weirdness of it, there's a very strange premise and then there's the very strange way that the movie fails to hold its its internal logic. And my wife gave me a good defense for the latter and we'll get into that. But as for the premise, the, the thing I kept thinking about as this movie went on was the story of Abraham in the Bible. Do you know the story of Abraham? 
Mm-hmm. Good. All right. So Abraham, of course, uh, uh, has a child at uh, at 100 years old, Isaac. And then one day he gets a voice, basically, God telling him to sacrifice his son on an altar. And Abraham is is sad <laughs> by this, but he, he believes that, that this is God telling him to do it. And he packs Isaac up with a bunch of sticks and he goes to burn him to death. And then the Lord seeing that he um, that Abraham was obedient and feared him, says, you don't have to do that. Here's a goat instead or a ram instead. And so this is a story about, you know, it, it's a story that is taught in Sunday school as a story about obedience and faith to the voice. And, you know, it, it's always been a really tricky story because there's been, you know, if it, you can be a, a, I mean, look, no, I, I think, I think no matter how, faithful you are if you hear a voice saying burn your child to death the appropriate thing to do is to say i well i've gone crazy and i'm going to get some help i'm going to have i'm going to have myself institutionalized so that i can't hurt somebody like it is if you you could be you could have more faith than anybody in the world but i you know you you, you gotta like you you're almost on guard to voices telling you to to do things like that in your life, right? And so Abraham has always been a really odd story for that reason. Like it, you know, in the telling of it, we know that the the voice was God. That's the story is that it actually was God. But if confronted with this in real life, you'd say like, Abraham's crazy, keep him away from the sticks. And this movie is about a man who hears a voice and then proceeds to bankrupt his family while <laughs> ignoring pleas to stop. And all for, like, for what? For a thing that hardly makes any sense at all? Yeah. All, all for, like, the chance to play ghost ball? It's, it's very odd. And the story that it tells, I, I mean, I kind of found it troubling because, I, <laughs> I don't know, there is a way that... Like movies throughout time and stories throughout time have had a real tendency to be about how, uh, you know, a man, it's always a man, gets some call to adventure that is sort of often self appears selfish or crazy, Mm -hmm. but he puts society aside to pursue this crazy thing. And then at the end, he is revealed to not be crazy at all. Mm -hmm. But I mean, to, you know... In real life, like, you'd think, no, man, you like you're definitely crazy. You need to fight this voice. Like yeah. if a voice is telling you to plow your corn and build a farm so that your ghost dad will come, like that's a voice that you really need to resist. And <laughs> and in the movie, it's not like everybody who hears this goes, Oh yeah, no, we support that. We live in a world where ghosts are constantly coming back and voices are constantly telling us what we need to do for our self-actualization. Like this world follows the same basic rules that our world does, where people, it is it is not suggested that everybody's hearing voices that tell them what they need to do in order to feel, to, to resolve their relationship with their dad. So he's the only one, like he is special that this is happening to him. And... For that reason, I mean, you just have to think. You need to 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 think. Why? Why me? Why? Why would the this break in the universe exist solely for me? One man, one very unexceptional man, to resolve 
a relationship with my dad. Like, why would this be where the universe chooses to, to break all of its precedent? It doesn't really make any sense, you know, to a sane person. Yes. Well, he feels some conviction, obviously. It's not just the voice. Like, he seems to feel that he has to do this, which maybe should make him even (laughs) more suspicious and questioning what he believes. But he does seem to have some sort of inner sense that this is an imperative. It's not just a voice that he hears and thinks, oh, this is just an invention of my own mind. It seems to be coming from some external source. Again, doesn't mean he shouldn't question it. And then, of course, once he does tear down a couple acres of his field and built this ballpark, which looks immaculate, by the way, even though he built it by himself (laughs) seemingly in about a day. I don't know. Maybe there's a a montage there that's supposed to hide a longer passage of time. (laughs) Yeah, but he tells the the whole montage takes place over the course of one story. I know. He starts a story about Shoeless Joe hitting 358 or whatever, (laughs) and it's just like every sentence follows the other. So it really does kind of imply that either he's been telling the same story I read a recently I read a great line about how insanity is only having one story that you just keep repeating the same story over and over and over. And that's how you can tell someone is losing their mental bearings is they can only tell one story. And so maybe, in fact, he built it over the course of 14 months and every day he woke up and told the exact same story and his family just nodded and went, dad's telling the Shoeless Joe story again, 358, okay. As other people have pointed out, including Nick Offerman on the podcast, it is completely beyond belief that tearing down the two acres or so that it would take to build a ballpark would actually bankrupt this person's family, this farmer, because farmer are big like this is a (laughs) tiny little fraction presumably of his farm either it's such a tiny farm that i don't see how he possibly could have broken even anyway because his farm's like four acres (laughs) large (laughs) or he's raising just such a tiny little percentage of his crop here that this really should not be a make or break thing so uh, maybe his wife was just like well whatever it's two acres go ahead (laughs) except that we know that's not the case in the universe of the movie because it's very clear that he is risking their financial future and and jeopardizing everything. So that doesn't make much sense. But he does at least get confirmation that this is not all just in his head, or at least that, I don't know, it's in the water supply or something, and it's affecting his whole family. Because as soon as Jewish Joe shows up on the field, his wife can see him and his daughter can see him. And so by the time he goes off to find Terrence Mann, he at least knows that he was not totally imagining this. And so that maybe is somewhat reassuring and encourages him to continue pursuing this. But I will say that the relationship between Ray and Annie, who's played by Amy Madigan, there are aspects of it that I don't love, but I, I do like the relationship on the whole. I, I like Amy Madigan just as an actress in this role. And yes, you're right that he is the one who gets to just jet off and irresponsibly put his whole family in danger while she stays to talk to the bankers and worry about being foreclosed on. It does seem to go both ways a little bit. Like he has, I guess, followed her passion to a certain extent up to this point. 
because he's the city boy. He's not the farmer, but he has moved out to where her family is and taken over this farm, and he's trying to make a go of it. So he's at least tried to do things her way for a while. And I feel like one of the things that it shows is that it's important in a relationship to sort of indulge your partner's passions and support them. Maybe not necessarily if they're hearing voices and also jeopardizing your whole family's future, but at least to a certain extent, like if they uh, generally are pretty responsible and take care of you, then maybe from time to time you let them indulge themselves. Although she is uh, very understanding, (laughs) probably more so than she should be. And also he is not very supportive when she has her big moment at the PTA meeting and she manages to shout down this woman who wants to ban Terrence Mann's book and she puts this big speech together and gets the whole crowd behind her and she's feeling the spirit of the 60s and then he basically just ignores her whole triumphant moment because he knows that the voice now wants him to go see Terrence Mann. So that wasn't the most considerate moment, but on the whole, I like their relationship. And I do kind of like the idea that it's never too late to change, that you can keep trying new things even after a certain point. Again, not necessarily this new thing, (laughs) not like total midlife crisis slash mental breakdown, not running away from your obligations and responsibilities, which he does do, but just the idea that, hey, opportunities could come along and they could be something special, which in this case it turns out to be, and you should at least listen to that voice that's telling you to try, as long as it's an internal voice and not a voice coming out of a cornfield. Okay, so... It is true that at her suggestion, they move to Iowa and start farming corn, which he did not expect to have ever been doing. But if you put, I mean, the equivalency between what she suggested the family do and what he suggested the family do (laughs) is it really does show, I think, an imbalance in the, I don't know, the expectations that movies put on on their men and their women as far as hewing to the rules. Mm-hmm. She, he, you know, it seems kind of clear to me that the the larger the larger psychological thing going on here, besides between him and his dad, is that he doesn't want to provide for his family. He is stuck in it is not a dead end job in the you know the necessarily the traditional sense because he's he's farming he's doing corn but he doesn't want to do that and so rather than than put his head down and work hard because he's an adult and that's what you have to do when you have responsibilities he wants to run from those responsibilities and that's a that's a classic that's a classic trope in stories the young man feels confined by the strictures of society and the responsibilities that are put on him. And so he goes chasing some crazy adventure. And at the end of it, we celebrate because now he's like the drummer for Led Zeppelin or something. (laughs) But these are all like really unrealistic dreams that we should quit encouraging. Do your work, (laughs) man. And it is like, I mean, you can, I think you can look at the plowing up of the farm as a very hostile act toward his wife and his family. (laughs) And by the way, I just want to jump in here real quick and note that this whole thing is about getting him the chance to have a catch with his dad, and he (laughs) never 
has a catch with his daughter the whole movie <laughs> what is this guy <laughs> that's a good point yeah i don't know how old she is she's pretty young but she seems like of an age where you could play catch i'm more of a play catch guy than a have a catch guy but uh that's just me six or seven year old gabby hoffman by the way pretty good in this movie as karen kinsella raised daughter and so that the reason that i did not the reason that i did not personally like watching the movie is because i i really hated his 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 decisions and his dreams <laughs> now on the other hand he did hear the voice and he did you know see the visions and if this had been a movie where he was much more tortured by the fact that he felt this calling that he resisted it he never resists it that's the mm-hmm. thing he just like goes and chases it immediately it takes very little he's got to hear the voice three times and that's it like that's the whole that's the only restriction he puts on his going off and doing whatever. If he had really felt like the story of Abraham is ultimately about this uh, man who feels incredibly tortured by the responsibility. He hates that he's doing it. He's not giddy. He's not happily plowing up a fire pit. Like this, he sees that this sucks what he's being asked to do. And it is fear that drives him it specifically says like i I don't remember what name god is going by at this point in the bible i forget but god says you know he when he relieves him of the burden he says i see now that you fear me it's the fear and this movie does not grapple with the fear it's kevin costner is just all too willing to do it and he doesn't doubt his sanity i feel Mm -hmm. like you could have made most of this movie but thrown in more emotional turmoil yeah, there's no threat if he doesn't do it. It's true. <laughs> there's too. It's nothing's not like, at stake. It's not. I'm gonna right. kill your daughter. It's right. Just... It's. It's not. If you build it, he will come. If you don't, he will. Yeah. Die. <laughs> right. <laughs> Lay out the downside for me here, disembodied voice. <laughs> All right. As for the the weird, unrealistic inconsistent way so i'll just give you one example to stand in for all the inconsistencies of how dream world works so at one point chick gandall who again died in 1970 he's throwing the ball around and he's like he's like i died in 1970 i haven't had a smoke in 18 years like yeah, to explain uh, so he, he knows that <laughs> he knows you're trying to place where where are these guys mentally yeah and, and he, what do they understand about what do they what understand yeah. exactly so he confirms there that they know their life, they know they died, and they've been in some sort of purgatory waiting for the chance to walk onto a baseball field. Mm-hmm. But they, for some reason, they still get their peak playing body and now they're out playing ball. Whereas for Moonlight Graham, he's hitchhiking. He doesn't even walk through the cornfield. They pick him up hitchhiking yeah. and he's a kid before his pro career has even begun and he remembers none of this. And so there's like these, like all these logical inconsistencies. There's many, many, many more than that. I'm just establishing one so that you understand. All right. So my wife gave me, I feel like she salvages the movie for me with this interpretation of it, which is you need to think about the name. The name is Field of Dreams, right? And the book, the original title, I did not realize this. The This is according to Wikipedia, I think. The director did not want to call it Field of Dreams because it's based on a book, Shoeless Joe. And the but the studio said no, we need a better name, Field of Dreams, and he didn't like it. And the author uh, W. P. Kinsella revealed that he actually had named the book Dreamfield originally, <laughs> and then the publisher didn't like it and said call it Shoeless Joe. All right, so a Dreamfield, Field of Dreams. If you think this is a field where dreams come true, 
then it's a really sappy movie. Like if his dream is to maybe have a catch with his dad and the dad's dream is to play ball against the best in the world and Moonlight Graham's dream is to um, get on a bat against a major leaguer and Shoeless Joe's dream is to not be banned from baseball and play. It's a very sappy movie. But if you think of this as an actual dream where all of it follows dream logic so that you can deal with psychological turmoil in your own mind, then it feels very much like, like uh, you know, the way that we experience dreams and the way that we sometimes act out the day's psychological drama in dream world. So as she put it, I'm going to just read. I dream a lot about the relationships I had in high school, and I think this is because it was such an emotional period, and there are some negative emotions there that never got turned into positive ones. The negativity, disappointment, hurt, shame sits repressed in my brain, and when I am asleep and dreaming, these feelings churn into barely comprehensible plots in dreams. A, quote, normal dream is one in which the dream plots have the characters doing something that made me feel the way I remember them making me feel. A, quote, good dream, an exceptionally satisfying one, is one in which the dream plots, the characters, act in a way that makes me feel the opposite of the true memory. For example, an ex-boyfriend apologized for something he did. He's friendly to me. He expresses admiration for the better life I now have without him. So, how is Field of Dreams a dream story? Ray is regretful, maybe ashamed that he was hurtful and unappreciative toward his father. He will never be able to repair that relationship because his father has died. But his brain can't stop processing that negative emotion. The movie's plot is a dream plot in which he shows his father how much he actually likes baseball, how he actually appreciates his father's stories, how he will make personal sacrifices to please his father, and how his father will reciprocate his actions with love. The message of this story is not follow your dream, where dream equals a hobby or aspiration, but a psychology-lensed idea of only in your dreams are you able to work out your emotions. And I think that's... That, to me, uh, she mentioned this theory, uh, I think, like two-thirds of the way into the movie. And from that point on, I uh, I appreciated it a lot more. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I like that interpretation. It's not really clear to me, like, the, the origins of the fracture in the Ray and John Kinsella, his dad, relationship. Like, we get a little bit of insight into that, that John was essentially like an overbearing Little League dad, I guess, and was just pushing Ray to be a baseball player. And at some point, Ray decided he didn't really want to be a baseball player. He was just feeling too much pressure to be a baseball player. And so he rebelled and he said, Shoeless Joe, his dad's favorite player, was a criminal. And then he left and never talked to him again. It's hard to say like whose fault this was or if it was either of their faults and is he now just trying to appease his dad is the whole point that his mistake was that he rebelled against his dad and he should have just done what his dad wanted him to do even if that wasn't his dream and his aspiration. Because if his dad's whole thing is, well, I didn't make the major so I'm going to mold my son into a major leaguer. That's not really something I would condone. You've got to let your kids find their own path and introduce them to things and encourage them. But if that's not what they want to do, then lay off a little bit. So I don't know if the whole message is just like, gee, I should have just done what my dad wanted me to do. And now I'll go back and play catch with him. Or whether it was just that, well, we could have found some middle ground and, you know, he could have bent a little toward me and maybe I didn't have to call Shoeless Joe a criminal and ruined our relationship. (laughs) 
you know, at some point I could have called him between the time when I was 17 and, and left home and the time he died. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, what? His dad is definitely a jerk, and yeah. <laughs> and the relationship is not in any significant way redeemed. Uh, it's not even clear no. whether his dad realizes. They don't talk. They don't work it out. Exactly. <laughs> All it is, the only thing that happens between them. So there's a line. Oh, my gosh. This line, the first half of it is everything I hate about this, this movie and this character. <laughs> the second half, though, is what I'm talking about. I can't think of one good reason why I should, but I'm 36 years old. I have a wife, a mortgage, and I'm scared to death I'm turning into my father. Oh, that is like the premise for so many movies and bad decisions that are lionized in movies. All right. But then the next part, I never forgave him for getting old. And really, the only thing that happens in this movie to resolve the relationship is that Kevin Costner is older than his dad on the field. Mm -hmm. And he no longer resents him for getting old apparently, and they can have a catch with Kevin Costner now in the sort of more powerful position. And that's it. That's the, there we go. That's, yeah. I guess we're resolved now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> By the way, here's another line in this, which this I think goes, I think this is the movie's kind of basically the thesis statement, if my wife is correct. And so he's talking to his wife, and he says, I've just created something totally illogical. And then his wife says, that's what I like about it. And if you think of this as a dream field where a dream is occurring, then in the same way, the illogic is crucial to the movie being good and fun. And if it were too logical, if they had actually made a more logical movie that held together and that didn't have all these sort of like eye-rollingly inconsistent things, it would actually be kind of a worse movie. And I, I will say that a lot of what drives the movie is that Kevin Costner doesn't know what's going on, and he is curious to know yeah. what's going to happen. Like, he's yeah. following this voice with no idea what he's going to find at the end of it. He builds the field, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. He goes to see Terrence Mann, but he doesn't know what he's supposed to do there. And you really do feel the same curiosity along with him of, like, what is going to happen? Like, this yeah. movie does not set up that what's going to happen is going to make sense. And so My you're, like, holding line, your breath, like, what's yeah. going to happen? My favorite line in the movie is not, like, one of these big dramatic speeches with the stirring music and all of that, which just tends to be kind of cringy. But when he's watching with his wife, the players on the field just practicing, and he goes, this is really interesting. <laughs> I love that line because yeah. he just he seems like a little kid again. Like it's just, it doesn't, it wasn't even in one of the scripts I looked at and it doesn't even seem like it would be that good a line really. It's not like a movie type line and it's obviously sort of understated. It's more than really interesting. These are long dead baseball players yeah. playing in your <laughs> ball field that you created out of corn. So it's more than really interesting, but I just like that he's like, lost for words and kind of overwhelmed and is transported back to being a little kid again. And all he can say is, this is really interesting. So I like he, that one. Yeah. He, at one point, he also tells someone, I swear to God, I'm the least crazy person I've ever known, which is <laughs> only a crazy person can say that. There's another line that one, probably the second most famous line in the whole thing and the whole movie is when I think Shoeless Joe turns back or maybe one of the White Sox turns back and says, hey, is this heaven? And Kevin Costner says, no, it's Iowa. Mm -hmm. And that line is very famous. That And I thought that it was like, I don't know, famous for being good. But in real life, oh, it is Joe who says it. Because in real life, 
he says, no, it's Iowa. And then the camera cuts to Shoeless Joe, who just gives him this dead stare. Like, <laughs> yeah. is that supposed to be funny? Like, yeah. why did you tell me? Like, what is that? Are you trying to be cute yeah. right now? I'm Leo a ghost. Leo is just like expressionless the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, he is very. The most illogical thing, it really does go out with like the, the fireworks finale where at the end, and the players all go away. The players all go to the ghost world, except for his dad. And they it's it's afternoon, and he and his dad play catch for three or four hours, apparently. <laughs> and his daughter, as well as Terrence Mann, have prophesied that he will that this field will somehow make money because people will show up to watch the baseball players. And you know that hasn't happened yet. There's no like publicity for this or anything like that. But after they're playing catch the camera like sort of pans up to like a helicopter shot and you can see that just like a hundred yards from the field (laughs) a line of traffic miles long has shown up to the field somehow called as one to this thing but there's no (laughs) players like they're showing up at night to yeah. see him play catch with his dad. That's and the he's going to gouge them $20 a piece. 20 bucks. It's, I know. It's so weird. That's the Terrence other thing. Is like, that, he's like, the... it's magic and baseball and they'll reconnect with <laughs> their childlike memories. And then you can charge them 20 bucks per <laughs> person. Like, and you can really, you can jack up the price on bottled water. <laughs> you can charge them for parking, Ray. Yeah. Did you, can you even imagine, Ray, the parking? <laughs> This is the plan. This is literally the, the secondary plan. market for these tickets. Yeah, it doesn't make any. I mean, no. I guess it's realistic in that, like, baseball is this sort of magical thing for a lot of us, but it is also a business and a money making venture. So I guess I appreciate that yeah. they didn't try to completely paper over the fact that, like, you have to pay money to go to a baseball game. And in this <laughs> case, it's like saving his family's farm and all that. And he won't have to give it up to the bank. But still, it is really, there's a dissonance to that speech and the whole like oh. magic versus commerce thing. Here. Yeah, Terrence Mann has this speech where he lays out the um the plan, the business plan, and then he covers up with a whole bunch of like ba- romantic thoughts about baseball so that you don't dwell too much on the business <laughs> plan. But here is the, here's the actual business plan. Ray, people will come Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. All right, I'm not sure. I, we might need to to focus group that for reasons they can't even fathom. Well, look what these two guys just did for reasons they couldn't fathom. They'll so. turn up your driveway not knowing for sure why they're doing it. Of course, we won't mind if you look around. You'll say, it's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. <laughs> but to rubes. For it's money they have and peace they lack. Oh my yeah. gosh, that just got super duper dark. And I he know. gives this speech while the play has stopped and all the players are watching this yeah, speech. Yeah, he's like a televangelist or something. And my wife, goes, my, my wife goes, what do the ghosts think? I can't read them. Do they want to be tourist attractions? It really isn't clear how they feel about this. Are they there to play in front of tourists or not? Oh, man, this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, we have to talk about the, the Terrence Men aspect that I think it probably would have been better if it had been Salinger. A, because maybe it would have been a little more comprehensible what his pain was that that he wanted to have eased because uh, it doesn't really seem like this is easing Terrence Mann's pain. All Terrence Mann wants is to be left alone and to program kids software. And instead, he's getting kidnapped and driven across the country. So I think it, it might have made more sense from that perspective. But also, 
as many people have pointed out, one of the big flaws in this movie is that there are no black players on the field, no Negro Leaguers. It's all white players. And this is supposedly a field that is giving a second chance to people who didn't get one in life or they they can't go to heaven because they still have some something that they didn't straighten out or experience yet. And of course, I mean, the best possible people you could have are the people who were banned from playing when they were alive. And yet there are no Negro Leaguers here, which is doubly incomprehensible because Terrence Mann, civil rights icon, (laughs) doesn't seem to think anything of this. His whole dream was to meet Jackie Robinson, right? His whole unspoken thing was that he what he didn't get to go to a Dodgers game in Ebbets mm-hmm. Field because they yeah. moved or something. Yeah. And, you know, he's uh, highly aware, one would think, of the history of baseball. And he has this whole speech about baseball and its role in American society, or which just completely overlooks <laughs> the fact that for much of baseball history, many Americans were not allowed to play. And you'd think that might occur to him. Meanwhile, he's super pumped to see Shoeless Joe Jackson. Who he also recognized. Yeah, <laughs> shoeless Joe. He can't believe it. This is not someone he has a particular attachment to, as far as we know. His dad didn't care about <laughs> shoeless Joe. Why is he not like? Where's Jackie Robinson? Or you know, where's Oscar Charleston? Or where's Cool Papa Pell? Or where's Josh Gibson? Or whatever. It makes zero sense. Why does Mel Ott get to come back? <laughs> what does what does Mel Ott have to straighten out here? He he played forever, <laughs> so I don't really understand that. That whole aspect of it is just the fact that it is Terrence Mann and not J.D. Salinger, I think, makes that even more glaring because you could maybe imagine Salinger not finding that as personally aggrieving or something as as Terrence Mann would. But that whole thing is very discordant. And personally, I just object to the way that this movie and Eight Men Out, of course, really just kind of, you know, applies the cinematic coat of paint to the Black Sox and makes them seem super sympathetic and, oh, poor Joe Jackson and poor Buck Weaver. And because of those movies and the books they were based on, I think there's this very persistent and enduring belief that those guys, uh, they didn't know what was going on or they weren't in the meetings or they were kind of railroaded or talked into it or whatever. And that's just not the case. There's so much good research that's shown that yeah maybe there are varying levels of culpability there but buck weaver and joe jackson like those guys lied through their teeth for the rest of their lives about what they had done based on the best information we have so it's not like they were really repentant at some point in their lives they lived for a long time and they kept making up stories and distorting what they had done and this movie even goes into the whole like well shoeless jackson had good stats in the series and so Of course, he couldn't have been throwing those games, but if you actually drill down into the numbers there, there's some pretty compelling evidence that he only had his hits at moments when it didn't matter or in the games when they were not throwing them. And in high leverage moments or games when they were throwing the games, he did nothing and and he made mistakes. And so... I think that whole persistent idea that those guys were innocent or they got a raw deal or something, I I think is very much exaggerated. And so I'd have more sympathy for the idea that the Black Sox deserve this second shot at redemption if they, A, most of them had not been pretty terrible people, but also if they'd like shown more contrition during their actual long lives at after this moment. Like I don't I don't really feel like they deserve 
this uh, cornfield moment here. So I guess you could say that, you know, everyone makes mistakes and so it's a shame and they could have made a different decision and this is giving them a chance to not go down that road or something. But of all the players in history who really deserve to have this moment on the cornfield, I I don't think it's Chick Gandal and (laughs) Swede Risberg. Maybe it wasn't about the players at all. Maybe it was about the two umpires <laughs> who had unresolved. Maybe they had earned the right. Why are there umpires? What are umpires doing there? Like, I know that you need umpires to play a game, but how did they get in baseball purgatory? What did they do that was unresolved? Like, they just always dreamed about umpiring another game. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you just have to have umps, I guess. They were probably in heaven and they had to come off the sidelines to umpire this game. Yeah, so the whole Terrence Mann thing, just it doesn't make any sense. And does he think he's dying when he walks off into the cornfield? He seems to think he's going to come back with a great book. I don't know if <laughs> if, if he realizes what he's getting into here, but I'm, this seems like a one-way trip. But uh, he seems to think he's going to come back and write a bestseller about this. So anyway, I kind of forgive that because James Earl Jones is great. (laughs) And so the interplay between him and and Ray is uh, one of the redeeming parts of this movie, even though that character really has no business being in this movie. And I don't even know if Costner is a good actor or not. I've kind of been going back and forth on that for years, but he is a likable one and uh, he clearly loves baseball. So I'm inclined to be sympathetic to him except for all the reasons he laid out about how his character is horribly irresponsible yeah he does the i also wasn't sure about his acting there were some some good lines and some bad lines but one thing that he does well he's a you know at the time he was a a real hunk and a star Mm -hmm. and he's very cool and yet when the players show up he really does convincingly become a giddy kind of dork. Like he's like yeah. really, he's flustered by the and players. And also around the farmers, he's like clearly out of place and out of his depth and, and intimidated by these people who are laughing at him because he heard a voice in the cornfields. Yeah, yeah. That movie does no favors to Iowans. <laughs> yeah. It's like the the things, when Amy Madigan, Madigan goes in and she's like standing up for democracy because uh, they want to burn books, like... The things that the woman before her is saying are like, they're like really, truly ghastly things. And everybody in the audience is just nodding along. And I mean, it really feels like they're loading, they're, they're loading the scales a little too much in this mm-hmm. one to, to be realistic. <laughs> yeah. Poor, yeah. So poor Iowans all look really, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And Burt Lancaster is just like the, I mean, he's overacting to just an incredible degree here. And the, the actor who plays the young Moonlight Graham, he bats right-handed too, even though Moonlight Graham was a left-handed her. Just everyone gets turned around to the right side in this movie. And the score, the James Horner music is just very cloying and intrusive. And there yeah. are so many lines. I, I actually, I just like scoffed or chuckled at a few lines while I was watching just because of just how overdramatic they are. But I don't know. There's still something I like about it. And there are people who will say, I've seen people defend this movie by saying, oh, well, if you've ever played catch with your dad or something, then you you understand, you know, and then that's why either you, you've had that experience or not. And that's kind of the passport you need to enjoy this movie. And I haven't really had that because uh, baseball was not a big part of my family life or my father-son relationship. It's not a, a way that I have really interacted with my father. And so I have 
no particular emotions surrounding that. And their relationship itself is just not very clearly drawn. And as we've noted, they don't really seem to resolve anything. There's no real catharsis here except that they play catch. And yet, I don't know, there's uh, there's some element of it that appeals to me. And as like manipulative and maudlin and melodramatic as the whole thing is, I just I kind of feel like it's misguided. It's not well planned out, but its heart is sort of in the right place. Like I don't I don't really feel like the movie is trying to manipulate me in a cynical way. Like I feel like the movie makers believe in the message and maybe they believe in it a little too much and they think it will just excuse all the flaws, but I don't feel like someone is trying to pull the wool over my eyes as I watch this. I feel like someone is uh, a true believer is really actually trying to impart some love of baseball to me. Is that so is that the, is when you say the message, what is the message? Is the message simply that baseball is is part of our our lives and and, yeah. and that's it. Like baseball is a big thing to me. Well, it <laughs> does sort of seem to be like what it wants the message to be. And that's kind of what I was getting at earlier when I was saying that if I didn't care deeply about baseball, I would think this movie was garbage. Because when Shoeless Joe says something like, you know, he gives his sort of crack of the bat, green of the grass type speech. And he says, the sounds, the smells, did you ever hold a ball or a glove to your face? And Ray says, yeah. And you can tell that he's experiencing that sense memory. And I was also experiencing it. I was sort of flashing back to being a kid and holding a glove over my face and inhaling that rich neat's foot oil smell and yeah maybe that's sort of a cheap tactic just to evoke that memory in me but it does work because i have that history and i don't mind some corniness in movies like you know you see there's a, a clip from harvey in the movie and they're kind of drawing a parallel between james stewart seeing the big bunny rabbit and kevin costner hearing this voice and people make the comparison between this and other jimmy stewart movies and like frank capra movies and i like frank capra movies and i like jimmy stewart so i i'm kind of okay with a a certain corniness and patness that i guess i'll accept in this movie even though so much of me rebels about everything in it really and i went back to read roger ebert's review which uh, I love Roger Ebert's yeah. and reviews, and uh, I miss Roger Ebert almost every time I see a movie because that used to be my tradition. Every time I saw a movie, I'd go read Ebert's review, and you can still do that with old movies, but not with new ones, sadly. So he loved this movie, and you know everyone loved the movie at the time, or at least the, the critical consensus is good. The Rotten Tomatoes score is high. It was nominated for Best Picture, yeah. <laughs> for goodness sakes. Yeah, 86% which... approval rating. That's why yeah. when you said if you weren't a baseball fan, you don't think you'd like it, but yeah. But the people who love this movie, I mean, non-baseball fans loved it, and it's the baseball writers who seem to to not like it. Yeah, I guess that's true. And and there are things that bother me, like, you know, Shoeless Joe's handedness or the details about the Black Sox. That bothers me, whereas if I didn't know anything about those things, I wouldn't even notice. So there is that. But yeah, I think maybe our minds have been kind of colored by this Twitter debate about the movie, which probably doesn't reflect the real life consensus. I I think it's still probably a pretty popular and well-liked movie in the world at large. Anyway, what Ebert said, and I sort of sympathize and agree with this, I think, 
So he says, as Field of Dreams developed this fantasy, I found myself willingly drawn into it. Movies are often so timid these days, so afraid to take flights of the imagination that there is something grand and brave about a movie where a voice tells a farmer to build a baseball diamond so that Shoeless Joe Jackson can materialize out of the cornfield and hit a few fly balls. This is the kind of movie Frank Capra might have directed and James Stewart might have starred in, a movie about dreams. And then he ends almost with Field of Dreams will not appeal to Grinches and Grouches and Realists. It is a delicate movie, a fragile construction of one goofy fantasy after another, but it has the courage to be about exactly what it promises. If you build it, he will come, and he does. In a baseball movie named The Natural, the hero seemed almost messianic. And I sort of agree with that. I don't think that you have to be a Grinch or a Grouch not to like this movie. I think there are a lot of... What about a realist? Well, maybe. But I don't think it's even that. I don't think that people who don't like this movie are saying, I just don't like any fantasy in my movies. There may be some people who are saying that, who are just saying, I want to see a sports story. And what is this voice and imaginary ghosts and stuff? And I'm not so sympathetic to that because I like fiction and sci-fi and fantasy. And so I'm inclined to like that sort of thing. But there are very valid, legitimate reasons not to like this movie, apart from the fact that there's fantasy in it. It just uh, it doesn't make any sense, and it's not very well made in certain ways. And yet, I do sort of agree with Ebert that eh, at least it has the courage of its convictions. Like, maybe its convictions are off, but... It is just laying it all out there. It's very earnest. It's not dialing it back at all. It probably should have dialed it back a little bit more than it does. But I kind of admire that it's just going for it. Yeah, I will. Uh, yeah, so uh, let's bring it to it. And then I, I will uh, summarize my thoughts thusly. I thought that the the silliness of the plot was very enjoyable. I thought that there were a lot of great moments, that there is a real sense while you're watching that you want to see what's next. And that there is, you know, a, a lot to like about it. And I did not come away uh, despising it. Yeah. I thought I did come away despising a very central premise of the main character. And I thought that that could have been resolved with better writing and that a more conflicted character, a more doubtful character, a more fearful character would have made this a lot more enjoyable and would have put the heroism in the right place. And I think the fact that it was made in 1990 doesn't do it a lot of favors just because Mm -hmm. that was sort of peak mawkishness. A lot of the production elements of it contribute to it just being really sappy in a way that I think if it had been made in 1960 or 1950, you'd uh, forgive those if if it had been black and white, for instance, Mm -hmm. or maybe if it were made more recently. And I don't know. There's a lot of um, some of the aesthetics are are cringeworthy at this point in time. But otherwise, you know, I, I thought it was pretty good as a movie. I thought that while I uh, there, I did not like it, I enjoyed it, and I probably will see it again. And you don't think, as best you can tell, that it was your nostalgia speaking to some extent? That liked it or that didn't like it? That liked it. No, I don't think any of the nostalgia kicked in at all. I saw <laughs> Hook the other day. Hook was my my other favorite movie when I was a kid and for years I've been like dumbly saying like well you know Spielberg's real best movie is Hook (laughs) like sort of like sarcastic like obviously that's Mm -hmm. not true but like I really loved Hook and I couldn't believe that it had 26% Rotten Tomatoes and then I watched it and now I cannot believe it got 26% Rotten Tomatoes (laughs) that movie is bad (laughs) Uh right. well I generally agree with those sentiments I think so last thing I'll say is that regardless of Reynolds's 
scenery chewing. Moonlight Graham is just such a cool character. Not a fictional character, obviously, a real man, but he was really popularized and brought to the nation's attention by the book and even more so by the movie. And I do really like that line where he says that we don't recognize life's most significant moments while they're happening, and that when he got into his one game, he thought, well, there'll be other days, and he didn't realize that was the only day. And that's very poignant. And yet, he also says that the worst tragedy would be if he hadn't become a doctor. So that sort of puts things in perspective. You miss out on one dream, and you end up gaining something that you didn't even know you wanted. So love that character, and glad that this movie really brought Moonlight Grimm into the lexicon. Anyway... I'll link to some of the more strident writing that has been done about this movie, and there have been valid takedowns of many aspects of it by Steve Goldman and Craig Calcaterra and Rob Nyer and... Joe Pesnanski has risen to its defense on multiple occasions, so there are people on both poles here, but I guess we've kind of charted a middle ground here, so if you're a Field of Dreams moderate, then hopefully you enjoyed this, and if you have staked out one of the extreme stances, then you probably think that we're wishy-washy and we should have condemned it or uh, wholeheartedly endorsed it, but I think you can dislike parts of it without utterly despising it, and that seems like something that a lot of people can't do. They are just a hundred percent against every aspect of it. They have almost like a a nausea that they feel when they watch it, and I, I don't have that. All right. When we okay. maybe, maybe if there's any other movies that are similarly divisive, maybe we'll do this. But I don't think there is. Maybe the yeah. natural. Probably the natural yeah. is the only one. All right. All right. By the way, another great complaint that Nick Offerman had about Field of Dreams was that Kevin Costner is ostensibly an Iowa farmer and he wears no belt, which having heard Nick say that, I could not not notice as I rewatched this movie. Everyone wears a belt. Kevin Costner, no belt. But I actually forgive this. I think it's okay because that word ostensibly is doing a lot of work there because he's not really a farmer. He has no idea what he's doing. He wasn't part of this life. The lack of a belt sort of signifies that he doesn't belong. I mean, we wear belts in the city too. So it's sort of strange regardless. But as another sign that he's not at home here, I think the beltless look actually fits. Anyway, feel free to write in and share your thoughts on Field of Dreams and any other comments or questions you have, because we'll probably be doing an email show next time. You can reach us at podcast at fangraphs.com or use the Patreon messaging system if you are a Patreon supporter. Speaking of which, you can become a Patreon supporter and help keep this podcast going while getting yourself access to some perks by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up. Kevin Metz, Stuart Joyce, Anil Rao, Sam Raker, and William Marshall. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. If you're looking for a little reading material and we just spoiled Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella for you, you can pre-order the paperback version of my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. A little behind-the-scenes Field of Dreams-related tidbit for you. We actually discussed calling the book or at least a chapter within the book if you build them since this is a book about player development but the publisher nixed that and maybe it was for the best anyway the paperback has a new afterward which we worked hard on over the off season so go pick it up it comes out on april 7th we'll be back to talk to you a little later this week 